Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. Today's text is going to be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. I'm going to be teaching out of the English Standard Version, though I will uh, actually make reference to the NIV at one point, uh, talking about one of the words, how it's translated. And you can follow along on the screens. It's also there on the folder you've got for uh, following along and taking notes. Hear now the word of our holy God. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I'm going to put a couple of photos up, and I want to see if you recognize some of these folks. So, Craig, you can, you can hit the first one. Who knows who that is? So, so, holler it out. Well, I want you to know Greg Younger is the first person. Greg knows who Kim Kardashian is. I remember when you worked construction for a living, and you did all this manly stuff, and he hollers out Kim Kardashian. That is apparently who that is. I didn't know that, because I don't keep up with such things. But... So that's Kim Kardashian. Let's look at another photo. See if anyone knows who this is. Who's that? Paris Hilton. Okay, I'm getting more depressed as we go. Um, We'll put up one more. This will be a little bit harder. This is from years ago, back in the 90s. Anybody know who this person is? Kato Kalin. Very good. Can anybody tell me, why do we know who those three people are? What are they famous for? What, what have they accomplished in life? The sum total of what they've accomplished is being famous. That, that's what they've done. They are famous for being famous. That They haven't cured any diseases. They, they haven't uh, led some military campaign to protect the nation. They haven't devoted their lives to serving other people, they're simply famous because they are famous. And usually when people in our culture are famous for being famous, they're also very wealthy because of that. And in fact, there's an entire industry that goes around people who are famous and our desire to know about them. We have all of the paparazzi that that wait just to get a picture of them because I need to see them apparently when they're out walking their dog. We have magazines. If you go through the grocery store line, you notice there's all these magazines like National Enquirer and Star, and they make up all these outrageous headlines about these people. There are TV talk shows that surround nothing but these famous people, reality shows that people now get on and they will crave getting on them and actually act like crazy people just so they can be famous or they can rub shoulders with 
someone who is famous. A few years ago, there was actually a study, and I think at the time it was when Britney Stars was the major pop, uh, Britney Spears was the major pop star, and a, a lot of young women were asked, would you rather, if you could, be a U.S. senator or be an assistant to Britney Spears? And overwhelmingly, they chose be an assistant to Britney Spears because she was famous. And they wanted just to rub shoulders with someone who is famous. Now, the question that we have to pose is, how do we live in the middle of such a culture? A culture whose ambition is to be like Kim, be like Paris, to be famous if, if you're Cato Kalin and you just happen to be where a gruesome murder had happened, but you're going to turn that into a, your 15 minutes of fame. How are Christians to live in such a culture? And should we have something like ambition? And if so, what would holy ambition look like while we wait for the return of Christ? These are the, the questions we want to talk about today because they're things that Paul answers here in this text. Now, Paul begins this section here again by going back to the topic of love. He's talking again about a holy love, and this is something we've been seeing throughout this section. Here he tells us in verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And he's returning to this subject of love because he had talked about it, if you remember back when he had done his prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and 13, when Paul had kind of concluded the first part of the letter, he had talked a lot about love, and he had said there, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another uh, and for all as we do for you. And he said, because that's going to establish your hearts in holiness. And so he was praying for them to love one another, and he said, I want you to love one another more and more. I want it to be ever-increasing, ever-growing, ever-abounding love for one another. And in fact, even when we moved to the, the text that we looked at last week, which was on sexuality, and Paul talking about a sexual ethic for Christians in the midst of a sexually corrupt culture, even that Paul related back to love. Because you remember he came back and he said, hey, if you love someone, you don't treat them wrongly in the sexual area. You don't lead them into sin. You don't uh, defile their spouse in a sexual relationship. You don't commit adultery. You don't uh, do things that would bring them under the judgment of God. That would not be love. And so love has been a, a continual thing that's going on here in this section. And he says, now I'm going to continue. I'm going to relate it to another area. Just like love had application to you walking in holiness, just like it had application specifically in the area of sexual holiness, so it's going to have application to what we're going to see in just a moment, which is your ambition for the type of life that you ought to live. And what Paul is actually doing in this passage is he's talking about a practical love for fellow Christians. Verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, this is a Greek word you all know. It is Philadelphias. Anybody ever heard of that? What, what do we call Philadelphia? The city of brotherly love, because that's literally what Philadelphia means. There were a lot of ancient cities that were named Philadelphia. And Paul is saying here, I want you to have brotherly love. Now, the, the interesting thing is, in Greek culture at this time, it was a very common word, but it literally meant the love that one sibling had for another sibling. But in the New Testament, it is used virtually universally 
it's taken over by the church to say, well, since we have become believers, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what the wider world means by the love you were to have for your siblings and your family, you are to have that now for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, for fellow believers. And Paul says this brotherly love, I don't have to write it to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And this is true both because if you're a Christian, you have certainly been learning the scripture and both Old Testament and new brotherly love is a key command. Jesus said it was the second greatest commandment. And Jesus in fact said, this is the new command I give to you, love one another. So you've certainly been taught by God in that sense, but Paul also would be saying that by the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit comes and dwells in you, there's something that happens when we become a believer that suddenly we love and care for other believers. I remember reading uh, Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, and he talked about how when he became a believer, he suddenly found an affection, a love, and a caring for people that had formerly been his enemy because of politics. He said, and I discovered that the faith transcended all of that, and people that I had formerly been against, I now had a compassion for and a love for because of our common Christian faith. And Paul's talking very specifically about a particular type of love here, because notice in verse 10, he says, for that indeed is what you are doing. So this love is not primarily about an emotion or a feeling, which it usually is not in the scripture. Love is more constantly in the scripture, more like a verb than like a noun. It's not so much about an emotion as it is an action. And Paul is saying that you became believers you understood the scripture, the Holy Spirit was teaching you, and you knew that you now had a love for your fellow believers, and that love is showing itself in the actions, the practical actions you are taking for one another. Formerly, people you didn't care about, you are now caring for them, and you are doing things to help them, to express and show love in your actions. And he continues on then in, in verses uh, 10 saying, that you've been doing this, but we urge you to do this more and more. The same thing he had prayed back in 1 Thessalonians 3. I want it to keep abounding and growing because there's always room to grow in this kind of love. And so this love that has worked itself out, Paul said, in that it works itself out in relationship to holiness, we need love because if we're going to be encouraging and spurring one another to holiness, there's going to be conflict sometimes. There's going to be difficulty in the relationships. And Paul says, you have to love one another so that we don't separate over offenses. And Paul says, if we're going to walk sexually pure in an impure culture, love has to be one of our ethics and our motives because love does not take my brother and sister in Christ and bring them under the judgment of God by walking in sexual impurity in line with the culture around us. Rather, it, it encourages them to walk in holiness. And here Paul's saying, love leads me to practical care and concern for my fellow believers. And we're going to see in a moment that the particular way is, even if they are struggling and having financial needs or they've got physical needs, we reach out and we help them. We are willing to serve and love them by giving, caring, working to help them. And so Paul is saying love is the ethic that runs through all of these because the Christian life is not about fame and flash, but rather practical deeds that express love to one another. 
That's what it's about. These Thessalonian Christians weren't known the world over by unbelievers, but Paul says, but what you're doing is you're, you're living as a community of love, and that's what God wants you to do. Now, that's the background again, because love is prompting holiness in all of these areas. So what's the holiness that Paul wants us to have that he's going to address? And in this section, it is a holy ambition, a holy ambition. Now, that's an unusual phrase. And if you notice in verse 11, the English Standard Version has translated this, and to aspire to live quietly. And aspire is, a, is an okay translation for it, but I think they've kind of done that because ambition we think of as negative. It's ambition would be the opposite of love. I mean, if I'm really ambitious, we think of people who would crush anybody who gets in their way. But the reason that I've chosen ambition here is that's actually normally how the word would be translated. It's more often translated actually as ambition. It's only used two other times in the New Testament, so I'll put them up so you can kind of get the flavor. In Romans 15, 20, and actually the NIV, by the way, has the, the phrase ambition or the term ambition. That's how they translated it here. In Romans 15, 20, we read this. Paul says, I make it my ambition. Same word to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Paul says, I got a fire in my gut. I got a burning desire. I have an ambition. That ambition is to preach Christ. Paul's telling us to have an ambition as well. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul's actually talking about the resurrection and, and our future. And he says, but he, he says, well, we got to continue living in our body. He says, so whether we are at home in this life or away from our body after death, we make it our aim, or some translations have our ambition to please him. Our aim, our goal, what we are driving for, Paul says, is to please God. No matter what else is going on in life, it is always our goal to please God. And so Paul's using this word, the only other time that it's used is here in this text, and he's actually using it, he's building a very colorful phrase that a number of commentators even referred to as being an oxymoron. He's using two, two words that normally would not go together. They're normally thought of being antonyms, of being opposites, but Paul's doing it to arrest our attention. I'm gonna put up the verse again with the New International Translation this time. And notice it says, make it your ambition to do what? Lead a quiet life. That, that's a strange phrase. Ambition, quiet life. Another way you could, you could uh, translate these two words, the word ambition also has the, the idea of striving, but, and the word quiet life has the idea of being at rest. So it's make it your ambition to have a quiet life, or I want you to strive to have a restful, peaceful life. It's, it's an unusual phrase that Paul is building, but he's doing that because he wants us to pay attention because he's saying, look, there is a worldly ambition that is out there. It is around you and you all know what it is, but how different is the ambition to which you are called in Christ? In our context, if Paul were here today with us in a culture that elevates the Kardashian and says, why don't you keep up with the Kardashians? Paul would say, 
here's what your ambition needs to be. Rather than seeking fame, I want you to seek a quiet life. I want you to strive for a restful life rather than ceaselessly striving for your place and to be noticed. See, one of the things that goes on in our culture of fame is, of course, after you've garnered your few moments of fame, what happens? Where do the cameras now point? Somewhere away from you. And what's the only way to get them back on you? To do something even stranger than what you've done before, right? Not to pick up, any of you remember Britney Spears? She had, the, she had the camera on her for a while, and when it started turning away, you remember she was doing things like shaving her head and all of these bizarre things, because it gets the camera back on you. And Paul says, no, no, no. Your ambition is not to get fame. It's not to be running around and ceaselessly striving. Your ambition is to have a quiet, restful, peaceful life, which will almost guarantee no paparazzi will follow you around because that doesn't sell books. It doesn't, it doesn't make for an exciting thing. And the sad fact is that's very alien even to our Christian culture. We live in a Christian culture that says you got to be radical, you got to be out there, you got to be doing something. And what I want us to see is Paul says, no, here's what you need to be doing, settling down and having a quiet, consistent life. That's your ambition. He tells us what this holy ambition looks like in practice, and he gives us two aspects to it. First, he says, I want you to have an ambition, a holy ambition to mind your own affairs. Another way to translate this is, make it your ambition to not be a busybody, okay? Uh, don't be a busybody, mind your own affairs. True love and holiness don't desire to be a busybody engaging in gossip or trying to run one another's affairs. What I pointed out a few minutes ago, and it's true, what, what our culture tells us is either try to, you know, Keep up with the Kardashians either by being like them or if you can't, at least watch the TV show and read the magazines and pry into all of their affairs and say, I wonder what they're doing now. And Paul says, don't be a busybody. Don't worry about that stuff. That is not what we're called to do. If our culture embraced this, our, 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 the magazine racks at the checkout stand in the supermarket would look completely different. But why is all that stuff there? Because those magazines sell. And there are TV shows that keep up with all of this stuff because we're interested in all of that. But Paul says that's not what true love and holiness looks like. True love and holiness strive to lead a quiet, productive life that rather than being a busybody about everybody else, is striving simply to be an example to others and to be in service and blessing to other people. Very different than our culture. Paul then goes on and says, well, here's how you do that then. If you're going to aspire to live quietly, you're not going to be a busybody. You're going to be minding your own affairs. And if you're doing that, you're going to work with your own hands. Now, this is very contrary, particularly to their culture. For a Greek philosopher at the time and the Greek uh, aristocrats, they despised manual labor. Aristotle had taught, and the Greek philosophers taught, that the, to truly be human, 
you needed to live the contemplative life. You sat around and you contemplated the meaning of life and you thought deep things and you couldn't be bothered with stuff like growing food and you couldn't be bothered with things like building stuff because who was going to do that? Well, we have slaves for doing that kind of a thing. So it was a despised practice within Greek culture. Uh, That was not what you aspired to was to work. The Greek ideal, a life of idle contemplation, while you let the slaves and the lower classes work hard to, to get the stuff done that you actually need to, you know, like live, like growing the food and making clothes and building homes and roads and transporting things and all of that. But scripture cuts across that and teaches that we are made in God's image. And we are made in God's image to work because what's the very first thing we learn about God in the scripture? In the beginning, God, what? Made the heavens and the earth. If you take our creeds, we we sang a song based on the Apostles' Creed this morning. We say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, what? Maker of heaven and earth. And so we're told we are made in God's image. And what's the very first things we're told to do? We're told to be fruitful, multiply, and to rule over the earth, to subdue it, to tend the garden, to take care of it. The very first things we're given is work to do because we are created in the image of a working God and therefore we are created to be workers. Now, this includes all types of work and what this means is that Paul was encouraging dirty jobs a long time before Mike Rowe ever came along. Okay, it's a sad thing because our culture has kind of come back to that because Mike Rowe has kind of become well known for making an appeal saying it's an honorable thing to actually work with your hands. It's an honorable thing to have all of these kind of jobs that our culture kind of looks down on because we want to get to the things where we we can oftentimes, the, the jobs we reward the greatest are the ones who actually produce the least. They do the the least for the common good. And the ones that are actually doing things for the common good, we've got it turned on his head and they're rewarded the least. And Mike Rowe has been kind of complaining against that for years. Well, Paul was doing that a couple thousand years before Mike Rowe was. He was saying, look, I know you live in a culture that despises this, but God says, just settle down and work with your hands. Have a steady, solid job and be glad to do that. And so, The scripture speaks to you and I that we should never doubt that God values our labor as service to him and he values the way we serve other people via our callings. And our callings, I've taught on this in the past, but callings refers to the specific tasks and responsibilities that are given to us by God through which God works to serve our neighbors and promote the common good to restrain the effects of the curse, and to bring blessing to every realm and life and corner in creation. Do you realize God did not make heaven and earth and then retire from creative work and go into just salvation? Why is the earth here right now? Who sustains the earth moment by moment? Who sends rain on the land and brings sun to cause food to grow? Jesus says, 
that when a farmer plants a seed in the ground, who causes it to grow? God does. God has continued his creative work. He is interested in every realm of life. And so when we become believers, we don't cease being human. And our callings are not just to spiritual things. They're to every area of life. So and I've mentioned this before, but if somebody asked me, because this is the kind of question you get when you're, when you're a pastor, when did you get the call? And I, I have no way to answer that question. Which call? I got the call to be a husband on June the 9th, 1984. I began my call of being a father in 1986. I had a call to be a midshipman starting in 1979, a Marine starting in 1983, uh, working for Ford Aerospace in 88, becoming a computer programmer. All of those were calls. And they were 100% equally a call from God as a call for me to do what I do now. They were just simply a different way of serving God and letting God serve other people through me. And so Paul is telling this to the Thessalonians, I want you to settle down and, and work, do the callings that God has given you. Every person in here has received many callings. Areas of responsibility where God works through you to serve others in every realm of life, every corner of creation. So when you go to work tomorrow, what are you going to? We, we have, it used to be that nobody said, I'm going to my job. You didn't have a job. You had a vocation, or the other word was a calling. But we've reduced it now down to a job. And rather than it being, you know, this is, why are you going to work? Well, I'm going to work because this is how God serves other people through me. It's now reduced to the bumper sticker, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go, right? I go to work because I got to have money, and that's the only reason I'm going. Paul would bang his head against the wall. He'd say, no, that's not why you go. You go because God wants to serve your neighbor through you. And for some of you, that's carpentry. And for some of you, that is being a teacher or a scholar. For some of you, it's being a homemaker. For some of you, it's working for the government. For some, it might be you know, do, doing whatever, being an artist or whatever it is that we do. For some of us, we may have even retired from a full-time job. And all that is is now I've got more openness and more availability to serve God in whatever way that comes open to me. But always I am looking for God to serve others through my calling. And that means that working hard at my various callings, including my job, is an essential part of holy waiting. This is one of the problems that the Thessalonians were starting to have. They were coming out of this culture which already kind of demeaned work, and then they hear that Jesus is coming back. And so some of them say, well, this is awesome, I'll just wait. And I can kind of get away with that because my brothers and sisters, if I run out of food to eat, they'll take care of me. This was a big problem they ran into in the early church. Now, Paul would say, that's not God's calling. You, you have a calling from God, which is to let God serve your neighbors through you, and I want you to focus on that. You can learn more about this in our series, Called, if you really want to look at calling and all the ways that it works. It's a very important thing, and in this 500th anniversary of the Reformation, which I keep mentioning this year, it's one of the great things that was restored through Martin Luther and the other reformers. 
was the only people who were called were not just monks and priests and nuns. Everybody was called. And the phrase became, if you milk a cow, milk it to the glory of God. If you were a farmer, farm to the glory of God. If you were a scientist, the scientific revolution started around them because over the doorpost in many of the labs and stuff was written soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. That's why we're doing what we're doing. So I encourage you to think about it, and I'm actually going to talk about it more in After Hours this week. So if you want to hear a little bit more about calling, why it's important, you can tune into the, to the video starting on Tuesday. Now, Paul also then goes on and says, look, this is so important. I want to remind you, we, we instructed you about this, and we gave you an example for this very fact. Notice at the end of verse 11, it says that we want to mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you. This is not deep Christian instruction. It's not something new. Paul's saying, I was only there for a few weeks, but this is so important and so basic, we got right to this. This was, this was immediately, we got the gospel laid in, and then right after that, we started talking about these kinds of areas. And Paul has already told us in this letter that they not only taught by their words, but they gave an example in this specific area. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, when Paul was reviewing their ministry, he had said this, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's reminding them of his own way of working, and he's saying to what we not only taught you, but you watched us. We were hard workers. And we did that because we didn't want to be a burden to you. Paul is preparing them because some of them are not working and in fact are becoming a burden on the community because they refuse to do their calling. And so Paul told them this was an example uh, to you. Now, this may seem to be, and it really does, in our Kardashian, Paris Hilton kind of culture, this seems pretty mundane. But I want you to see, this is important teaching in the New Testament. It's not just this passage. I happen to be here in 1 Thessalonians. But this is a teaching that is all over the New Testament. I'm going to show you two passages just to, to do that. The first one is from 2 Thessalonians. We're going to see that the Thessalonians continued to have this problem. And so in an, an extended passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul writes this, and I'm going to be highlighting a number of words in red because they're dealing with the same concepts that we're talking about here. 2 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 6, says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So there are some of you there that are idle. You're not hard workers. He goes on and says, And not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. He uses a word here for tradition. That's not even just instruction. Tradition means this is a specified body of teaching that Christians everywhere are getting, and it's being handed on from one generation to the other. This is really important stuff. This is the most important things we do. And we gave you a tradition that you can't be idle. We gave you a tradition that Christians were to be hard workers, and you received it from us. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Like we, we instructed you and we gave you an example. We told you that you could imitate us because we were that way. We were not idle when we were with you, 
nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Same themes coming back. You can follow our example. We taught it, but we also gave an example of it. And when we gave that example to you, we were showing you that we work hard and we didn't want to be a burden to someone else. Verse 9, he continues and says that we were giving you and ourselves an example to imitate. And the principle at the end of it all, and this is a fairly famous one, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. This was actually a problem. It's amazing how these problems come back over and over again. It was a problem in the ancient world because of Greek philosophy. You may not be aware of this, but if you study American history, one of the problems they ran into when they got to Virginia, very different than Massachusetts Bay Colony, but when they first got down there, a number of the people who had come were from the upper classes and they felt like work was beneath them. And so they expected other people to, you know, like build the walls, build the homes, grow the food, and they would sit around being noble and aristocratic. And it got to a crisis point where they said, okay, here's the rule. He who does not work does not eat. And they had to apply this principle very literally because it has been a consistent problem. Paul goes on in that passage in 2 Thessalonians in verses 11 to 13 and tells us specifically it's happening in Thessalonica. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Different word than in our passage, but the same concept. You're sitting around and instead of working, your, your mouth and your ears are becoming the devil's workshop and you're just becoming a busybody is all you're doing. Verse 12, we, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, notice the same phrase again, and earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. We want you to do good. We want you to love. We want you to be sharing with one another, but that doesn't become an excuse for others to be idle, busy bodies. So it's the exact same concerns as in our passage. Now, another passage that we can look at, First and Second Thessalonians are two of the earliest writings in the whole New Testament. Among Paul's last writings are the pastoral epistles, Titus and the two letters to Timothy. So let's go all the way to the other end of Paul's ministry and let's notice what his concern is. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Telling Timothy, he says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that, circle that word, that. Here's why. Here's why I want you to pray this. Here's why this is to be such a concern in prayer, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Does, does that sound familiar? Years later, Timothy's in Ephesus in a different place, same idea. You're to pray this because our desire is that we get to live a peaceful, quiet life, full of godliness. This is what you're to pray for. Now, if I were just to ask us, is this what animates our prayers for our political leaders? Especially if you don't like them? Because that's what Paul tells us to pray for them. Pray that we can get to live a quiet life peaceful life. Not stirring things up, not creating issues, just a quiet, peaceful life. This same concern is there. 
And so this is what our holy ambition looks like. Paul then gives us a motive as he's doing throughout Thessalonians. You may notice we're having a lot of the same sections every time because he keeps doing this. This is how I want you to live. Here's how love undergirds it. Here's what holiness looks like. And here's the motive for it. And he gives us two motives here. He says, I want you to live this quiet, peaceful life, not being a busy body, but working hard on your own, minding your own business. Why do we do this? Well, Paul first says, there's a motive related to unbelievers. In verse 12, so that, this is why I want you to have this holy ambition, so that, this is the purpose and result, you may walk properly before outsiders. You need to consider what your lifestyle looks like to an outsider, to an unbeliever. Is it setting an example for them? And this is particularly important. Pay attention to how the letter has been constructed. How does our Christian sexual ethic line up with the culture? It doesn't. We've already drawn not favorable attention to ourselves. That was true in the Greco-Roman world, and it's been true down through history, and it is very true for us today. And so Paul is saying, look, you've already got negative attention on you because you don't line up with the way the culture thinks about things sexually. You're going to have conflict. So in light of that, don't get other conflict. Don't give them things to say where they say, well, yeah, these Christians say all that, but what a bunch of lazy bums. These people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good at all. I mean, dear Lord, don't hire a Christian. Because if you do, first off, they're not going to like it when you're telling dirty jokes at the office and they're not going to participate, you know, and, and all of the other things that we got going on. But even worse than that, they're terrible employees. Paul says you don't want it to be that way. You want it to be that we may be out of line here, but we are hard workers. We care for each other, which is actually what the early Christians became known for. We may think they're crazy and a whole bunch of things, but even some of the pagan philosophers said, but they put us to shame. They take care of their own people. And in fact, they're taking care of us, the very ones who are persecuting them, because these people work hard. So Paul says, have this motive towards unbelievers. We have to always be concerned that our lives adorn the gospel with love and good works. They don't, they're not the gospel. Okay? Don't give in, you, you will hear from some people out there, be the gospel. You can't be the gospel unless you're Jesus. Only he can be the gospel because the gospel is living a perfect sinless life, dying a horrible death, bearing the wrath of God so that the sins of humanity might be forgiven. That's the gospel, being raised. You and I can't do that. But what we can do is live lives worthy of the gospel or adorn the gospel by our lives so that it looks attractive to an unbeliever. Paul says that's one motive. Second motive is a motive related to believers. This is in verse 12 as well. And that is, so that you may be dependent on no one. Love and holy ambition make us work hard to not be a burden to others. It makes me say, I don't want others to have to take care of me. I want to be able to take care of myself and even be able to provide for others. And this is the problem in Thessalonica, which comes back again in 2 Thessalonians. Some people said, well, I'm part of a community now and the community loves me and therefore I can take advantage of that love. And I don't need to work. 
I've just kind of become an idle busybody while we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And let me tell you, there is a lot of truth in the old Puritan saying that idle hands are the devil's workshop. They are. They get us in trouble. I was praying for a friend recently that was getting some well-needed rest, but we were praying together, and I was praying that when there was rest, idleness would not lead to temptation and sin, but rather lead to being able to serve and build and do the things that need to be done. And that's one of the concerns. And so we don't take advantage of the love of the community, become an idle busybody. We, out of love, work even harder. And Again, some of them also had a misunderstood eschatology. The very next verse we're going to go into is going to start dealing with eschatology for the next two sections of the letter. And eschatology, the return of Christ, this has been perennially a problem. If Jesus is coming back, then what I do now really doesn't matter. In fact, in America, for, for a period of time, through some really bad eschatology, we even came up with sayings like, why bother polishing the ship's bell if you're on the Titanic? Well, first off, that's a false understanding of what's going to happen to the earth at the end of time. It's not the Titanic. It's not going to the bottom of the ocean. It's going to be purified, but it is still the new heavens and earth. There is continuity. But secondly, here's a real good reason, because Jesus told you to worry about the ship's bell. That's why. And it's a false understanding that says, I'm not worried about all that stuff. That's the thing that says, my calling doesn't matter I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not what the New Testament teaches. True holiness and love produce a desire to work hard so I can meet my needs and have enough to be able to share with others. We won't turn there, but you can jot down in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul actually says, here's what happens when you become a believer. If you were a thief and you were stealing from other people, when you become a believer, you stop stealing, you Start working hard, fulfilling your calling so that you can take care of your own needs. And in fact, you work hard so that you have a surplus so you can give to others. He who was a taker has now become a giver. Not, not just that he stops taking and stealing, but he goes all the way to the other way of being a giver. That's the effect of the faith. Now, before I turn to applying the word, let me say real quickly, this independence Paul's talking about, where he says don't be dependent on anyone, is not individualism. He's not saying do this so you don't have to be part of community. What he's saying is, is no, if you understand holy love and if you understand holy ambition, then your ambition is that while the community is there to help in your hour of need and you are part of that community, you're not here to take advantage of it. In fact, you want to be ready to be able to reach out and help them. That's your goal to be putting in, to be caring for, to be loving and watching over others, not saying, oh, hey, this is great. They like to help. I like doing nothing and being helped. This is a good relationship. Wrong understanding, Paul says. Now, how do we apply this word? What does this mean for us? I wrestled through this a lot this week because there are several ways we could have gone, including kind of looking at all of the juxtapositions that have run from 311 through here. But as I prayed, I think just the, the, the question, we're only going to have one question today that I want us to think about. Do I have holy ambition or do I have worldly ambition? 
as those made in the image of God, you and I are going to have some kind of ambition. The question is, does it line up with Scripture or does it line up with our culture? Our culture prizes and pushes empty fame, riches, and looking out for number one. That's what's important in our culture. We're encouraged to desire the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Everybody remember that show from a while back? Anybody ever notice there's never been a show of the lifestyles of the peaceful and quiet? The lifestyles of the hard worker who aren't trying to get the spotlight? If that show comes on, it won't last through one episode, which is a sign of a cultural sickness. The Puritans who helped found this country would have never had a show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. They had never understood that. This culture encourages, if you can't be one of those, at least be a voyeuristic busybody and concern yourself with them and concern yourself with others. But Scripture gives a far different ambition. So, the, the way we ask, am I having a holy ambition or not, is let me, let me give several questions for us to think through that answer whether I do, whether it's holy or worldly. Do I find my significance in public recognition or in quietly fulfilling my calling? Where do I find my significance? The, the thing that says, this is, I, I'm satisfied with who I am. This is where I root my identity. Is it that I'm quietly fulfilling my calling or is it that I'm receiving the applause of others? There's a lot of people in this culture that it's about applause. Whether I'm doing anything of value or not doesn't matter as long as I'm receiving applause. Which way is it for me? Let me turn that just a slight degree and ask the question this way. Do I find my significance in success or faithfulness? And those are not the same thing. There are many people who are faithful and not successful. There are some who are faithful and therefore successful. And there are many who are successful and are not faithful. The two are not linked like that. And so the question is, where do I find my significance? Is it in being faithful to who God has called me to be, to what God has given me to do, and putting my hands to that? Or is it success? Now, before you quickly turn away from that, let me tell you, if you've, if you've been around here for very long, you know I ask this question fairly often. And you know I can give you Bible verses for why it is well done, good, and faithful servant. We're never told well done, good, and successful servant. We're never told anything about that. I can give you all those Bible verses, and then some nights I lie awake, worrying about whether I'm successful or not. Don't answer that quickly. Don't say you know that. When you're alone, quiet, and you look in the mirror, where's your significance? 
success and faithfulness. They look very different. Enough public confessions. Do I, or am I content? Turn the question a little bit different. Am I content and at rest in fulfilling my calling? God's given me these things. Am I content being a husband, a father? Am I content in my call to be an elder within this community? Or am I always restless, yearning for something more? Yeah, I've got that, but if I could get this. See, the other way of looking at that word ambition, you know, to ambition to lead a quiet life, is striving to have a life that's at peace and rest. Not, not, not ill-content, looking for something else. And again, our culture, we get these lifestyles of the rich and famous, we do all this because it, it feeds into our culture that says what you have is never enough. Don't be satisfied with what you've got because if you get satisfied with what you've got, our whole economy might lock up. So we live in an economy that says it's not enough to be satisfied with what you've got. You've got to want something else. You've got to be restless. You've got to be yearning. It, it can't be enough that I, I just, I come home at night and I love my wife or I love my husband or I take care of my kids or I take care of my grandkids. I, I go to work and I do a good job. I serve other people. When I do. That's not enough. Friend, if we are in that place, that is a sure sign the world is eating into our soul. Because God says it is enough. Another way of looking at it, do I find my joy in a job well done that helps others? Or do I need something on top of that? Because what calling is about is God is serving someone else through me. And whether they applaud it doesn't make any difference. God served them through me. Whether other people like it doesn't make any difference. God served them through me. Whether I ever get rich doesn't make any difference. God served them through me, and I find my joy in that. Or do I not? One last question to look at it is to look at Jesus' words. I love these. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul quotes an otherwise unknowing, unknown saying of Jesus. And it is, Paul says, for remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's what calling is about. That's what a holy ambition is about. I, I want to settle down. I'm not going to be a busybody. I'm just working hard and letting God serve others to me because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But a worldly ambition is about how I can give as little as possible to get as much as possible back. And if that's true, then Jesus was wrong. But my money's on Jesus was right. And it's more blessed to give than receive. So I encourage you this week, think about those questions. And again, don't pass by them easy because I know these things but I find some of them very hard because I'm in a culture pressuring me constantly to live for success rather than faithfulness, fame rather than a quiet, peaceful life, getting rather than giving. Now we're going to come to the Lord's table and this
may seem a little bit unusual at the end of this teaching, but I want to remind us that it actually fits in very well because Jesus was not about flash. He was about substance. He was about a quiet life of obedience to his Father. The incarnation, okay? If, if the culture that has produced the Kardashians and the Paris Hiltons and the Cato Kalins was in charge of it, what would the incarnation have looked like? It happened in Rome. It happened when there could be TV coverage. But where did it happen? In a, in a stable in Bethlehem, attended by shepherds that nobody knew or cared about. But that's the incarnation. It is God at work. Isaiah 53 reminds us that the shocking thing is when the servant of the Lord came, there was nothing about it. He wasn't, he didn't look like the Kardashians or the Hiltons. He would not have been on People magazine, the most handsome man alive, Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody to paid attention. Nobody would have looked at him. But he who was out of step with the unholy ambition of our age, that one who in fact the ones who had unholy ambition put him to death for crossing their unholy ambition, that one was constantly, ceaselessly working to obey the Father. Quietly, consistently, moment by moment, obedience to his calling. And in him doing that, you and I were saved. In him doing that was salvation for us who moment by moment have disobeyed our calling and have preferred the shortcut, the other way around, rather than obedience to the will of God. So we're going to come here today to the table giving thanks that Jesus lived by holy ambition and confessing our own unholy ambition, our own dissatisfaction with what God has given us. Friends, this has been deep in us. In the garden, when we had everything, we weren't satisfied. It was too quiet. It was too peaceful. We wanted something else. And therein lied our destruction. And today we celebrate that one refused that path and said, I will not take that get behind me. I will take the cross. The cross comes before glory. If you are a visitor, you are welcome to participate at this table if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you understand that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We, we do not earn our salvation. If you go out of here and manage to live perfectly this week by everything I've just said, you still will not have earned your salvation. It is by what Christ has done for us. If you understand that, please eat with us. If you do not, you should let it pass because this is a meal for believers. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, this morning we come to your table and we are grateful for the obedience of the Lord Jesus that is represented here. Lord, I pray that as we who are unworthy partake, Father, we pray for the grace and mercy of Christ to cover our sins, to give us his righteousness, and to make us pleasing in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in three or four minutes. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread, we are reminded of your incarnation. Even more, we are reminded of the reason, the need that lie behind your incarnation, which was our rebellion. When you had given us a holy calling and a, a vocation of guarding and keeping and tending the garden, we forsook that, preferring to go our own way. We disobeyed and we rebelled. And so we have done down through the ages, each one of us following in the footsteps of our father Adam, forsaking your commands, forsaking your good paths, and trying to forge our own. For Father, we have longed to bring glory to ourselves rather than you. We have longed to blaze our own path rather than walking in obedience to the one you have laid out before us. We have longed to make ourselves the center and you the periphery. And Jesus, we recognize this morning, we profess and we confess that you were broken for us because we had broken and shattered the covenant. But in your brokenness, you offer to us healing and wholeness. And in taking this bread, we confess our sins. And we ask that you would have mercy and forgive us as those who have forsaken the calling you gave to us and forged our own. We ask in Jesus' name. Take and eat. Lord, as we hold this cup, of the new covenant that represents your blood, we were reminded that even in the garden, an animal had to be slain so that covering of, uh, over their nakedness might be given to them. And so it was for all of the lambs down through the ages that were slain to cleanse from sin and to provide covering until you, the perfect lamb of God, had come. And you were offered once for all the perfect spotless sacrifice, both to cleanse us from our sins and to cover us in your righteousness, that we might be just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had actually perfectly kept all of your law, all of the callings that we have been given by our Father. Lord, we are grateful for the blood of Christ. We are grateful for its power to cleanse, for its power to purify, for its power to make us positively holy 
in the sight of our God. And so, Lord, we lift up this cup and we say thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, as we have come to this table, we have forsaken our own works. For our works can bring us nothing but condemnation, but the works of Jesus Christ bring us salvation. And so we do not join what you have separated by thinking that we can work our way to salvation. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would minister to us and we who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, would now be equipped and empowered by you, Holy Spirit, to go out and to walk in the various callings you have given us and to do good works, not that we might earn salvation, but so that we might be of service to our neighbor. Not that we might somehow help you, for we could never do that, but so that you might work through us to help those around us. And so, Lord, while we do not join what you have separated in bringing our works to salvation, to our justification, we also do not separate what you have joined. And Lord, we do not say, because I've been justified, therefore I will not work. Father, rather, we ask that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit, that we might go forth from this place, that we might serve you, and that we might serve others this very week, and that we would do it for your glory, for the good of the people made in your image, and that it might adorn the gospel so that others might believe and look to Christ. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would empower us to do this. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, and I'm going to conclude with a word of benediction we don't use real often, but it's out of Psalm 90, which is a psalm of Moses, we are told. And I encourage you to receive God's blessing as you go forth to fulfill your vocations this week. May God's deeds be shown to us and his splendor to our children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us to establish the work of our hands. May the Holy Spirit do this for you through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.